Well, this morning, as I jump into my message, we're going to be talking today about weakness and vulnerability in, in our Sunday planning team. As we talked about that, one of the people on the team said, um, I really think it would be important for Dave for you to share some brokenness. And Pastor Matt said, oh, Dave, you'll be real good at that. <laughs> as if to suggest that I have lots of brokenness, which I actually do. So Matt knows me well. No, I want to begin our, uh, our message this morning with a story. Uh, it's a story from um, a couple months ago. Uh, my oldest daughter, Skylar, and I had the chance to get out of town for a few days. We went off on a little father-daughter, kind of pre-middle school coming-of-age trip. We headed out to Crescent Lake up in the mountains, and we got this teeny little cabin there, and we're going to spend a few nights together, just father-daughter, um, mountain biking and... Uh, kayaking and hiking and doing all sorts of outdoor stuff as well as spending some time just talking together about what it looks like to walk with Jesus in this next crazy phase of her life called middle school. And so it was a trip that I'd been thinking about ever since she was born and I was really looking forward to it. And we drove there on a Wednesday afternoon and got there Wednesday evening and moved into our teeny little 10 foot by 10 foot cabin. And there was a double bed in there which took up most of the space. And we had a little cot for Skylar off to the side and we cooked dinner on our stove and explored the camp and then settled in for the evening, did our devotional time and just before we were about ready to fall asleep, um, I was actually laying on the bed on my back with my eyes closed thinking about kind of getting ready just to, to cash it in and Skylar was digging around in her bag by the side of the bed when all of a sudden she said to me, Dad, is there a bird in our room? And I opened my eyes and discovered that there wasn't a bird in our room there was a bat in our room. And I don't know if you've ever experienced the flight of a bat, but they are the scariest, most creepy animals ever because they don't fly in any sort of a smooth fashion. They sort of teleport around and they herk and jerk. And so this bat is flying around and Skylar hits the ground on the side of the bed, like full on, you know, like army style. And she's like, Dad, Dad. And I, of course, said, Honey, let your father handle this situation with the bravery and courage you'd expect from me. No, it's not like what I did at all. I was laying on my back, which is one of the most vulnerable positions you can be in, I just want to say, and I grabbed the pillow that was lying there next to me, and I start to swing the pillow at the bat as I screamed at the top of my lungs. <laughs> Later on, my daughter would say to me, that real brave dad, you know, like... Well, this bat is flying around. I'm screaming and swinging the pillow at it. And finally, after what seemed like an eternity, it flies up into the ceiling, like above this little beam, this little gap and this beam in the ceiling and kind of disappears in there. And Skylar and I are looking at each other like, what just happened? Did that really just go down? I mean, at one point, the thing like lunged at me and was inches away from making me a vampire. I'm serious. <laughs> I was almost preaching like this today. But... um so it's up there, and now we're like, well, what do we do now? So our plan was, all right, Skylar, you man the door. I'll get up on the bed and, like, pound around on the ceiling by where the bat disappeared, and it'll come out, and then we'll shoot out the door, and it'll fly off into the night, and then everything will be good. So I'm up on the bed. I'm pounding on the ceiling. I'm sticking a broom handle up in there. No bat. The bat refuses to come out. So eventually, we say, well, what do we do now? I said, you know, I think we should just go to bed, the bat's obviously gone. Let's pretend like this never happened. We'll just get a good night's sleep. And then, you know, we'll figure things out in the morning. Well, we lay down. We get all tucked in. We turn the lights out. And I'm laying there. And it takes me about 30 seconds before I say, 
there's no chance you're sleeping, are you? And she's like, nope. And I'm like, me neither. We're going to the van. Slept all night in the van. It's the kind of courage your pastor exhibits. But see, the point was is that as much as we tried to imagine and pretend and convince ourselves that the bat was no longer there, deep in the back of our minds, we knew that he still was. And so as soon as the lights went out, all we could think about was him coming out and actually making us vampires. And friends, we are in this series that we're calling Spiritual EQ. And this is a series about how our spiritual maturity and transformation doesn't just involve our IQ, our our intelligence, our knowledge of God, but it is also firmly rooted in our EQ, in our emotions and deep internal experience of God. And friends, so often, so often in our lives, we as Christians just try to ignore the deep internal problems that are kind of flying around inside of us. So often as Christians, we just try to go to sleep and live our lives pretending and imagining and trying to convince ourselves that the hurt and the pain and the junk and the damage that is flying around in our souls is no longer there. But the truth is this. There are some bats in you, and there are some bats in me. And instead of just ignoring them, God wants us to deal with them in a way that helps us to grow and mature and become the people he longs for us to be from the inside out. That's what this series is all about. And this morning we're going to attempt to deal with some of the bats in our hearts by exploring the biblical principle of living in weakness. That sounds a little counterintuitive, doesn't it? Living in weakness. We will defeat and gain victory and be more like Christ when we live in weakness. That's what the Bible will teach us. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you didn't bring one, there's one on the pew rack right in front of you. We're on page 941. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. As you turn, let me just give you a rundown of what is happening as we dive into our text today. Paul, uh, the apostle, the great church planter of the first century, has planted a church in the city of Corinth. And if you look at a map um, of the country of Greece, Corinth is right in the center. In fact, if you look at Greece, it is actually two giant chunks. There's a giant chunk in the north, and then there's a giant chunk in the south. And those two chunks are connected only by a very small strip of land, about four miles wide. It's a little strip called, it's called an isthmus, a small strip of land connecting two bigger um, pieces of land. And right at that isthmus is this city, Corinth. Now, because of the geographical nature and layout of the, of the country, all the north-south trade routes ran right across this little land bridge, this little isthmus, and right past Corinth. And because of this, because of its strategic location, Corinth was this booming, hustling, bustling trading center. It was sort of a megacity where young entrepreneurs would go in order to make their fortune. And Corinth was a place that that was all about success and accomplishment and making money and making a name for yourself. It was where um, the tough got going and the didn't going got tough. How'd that go? I just totally whiffed that. That was bad. Help me. Bolts and nuts, whatever. Um, I don't have Spanish to fall back on there. Uh, so now it's this, it's this community where people go to, to live in strength and prosperity and accomplishment and achievement. And now there's this church right in the middle of the city. 
that Paul's planted. And in his absence, this church starts to veer. This This church starts to get off track. And a group of false teachers comes along. And this group of false teachers begins to sow into this church a culture of success and achievement and power. They begin to tell this church that what really defines their spiritual maturity and their spiritual growth are their abilities and their gifts and their talents and the things that they achieve for God. And there's a lot of bragging happening. There's a lot of posturing and spiritual resume building and people saying, let me tell you and show you how great I am for God, how mature I am in Christ by all the things I do and all the things I've done. And so there's this constant comparing this constant chasing after and running after spiritual mountaintop experiences in order to prove your importance and your significance and your maturity in Jesus. And so it's into this boastful, off-track, Christ-following church that Paul writes this letter. Two letters, actually. First and Second Corinthians. Today we're looking at Second Corinthians. And we're right in the middle of Second Corinthians 11, in the middle of verse 21. Here's what Paul writes. He's writing to these folks who have bought in to this this idea that you gain spiritual maturity, you prove your spiritual maturity by boasting about your accomplishments. He says, Whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I am speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. You see, what Paul seems to be doing here as he launches in is he seems to be playing their game. He seems, it looks like he's going to enter in, he's going to take on these false teachers and he's going to say, look at their spiritual resume and look at mine and I will one-up them in every single way. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? I am. The descendants of Abraham? You betcha. And you just can't wait for Paul to keep on going, to rattle off all the things that he's done for God and to completely bury these guys. Only he doesn't. Only what Paul says here is that to measure your spiritual maturity and growth in this way is foolish. He says, am I speaking as a fool? He says, if, if I were to take this approach, if I were to sort of to try to compete and posture myself against them in the same way they're doing with you, that would be foolish. I would just be a fool. And that word, that word just means insane. That would be an insane approach to proving my spiritual authority or maturity or leadership. Paul is saying, To think that presenting a resume of grand spiritual experiences makes you a mature follower of Jesus who has authority is to completely miss the point of following Jesus. And now Paul gives them his actual spiritual resume. He says, you want a resume? You want to boast? Well, here's mine. 1 Corinthians 11.24 Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold, and I have been naked. 
Just the other day I was reading a book to my kids called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. Have you ever read this book? Well, this is Paul's version. It's like the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad career. Um, Paul lists out his resume. He says, here's my career. Here's what I boast in. Here's what it looks like to be me. Here's my ministry credentials. A lot of suffering, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of torment. And then he concludes the chapter in verses 32 and 33 with a story, not of success, but of humiliation. He says, In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of the Damascenes guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket from a window in the wall, and I slipped through his hands. You see, Paul's not saying... Look at me, look how cool of a missionary spy I am. I'm like the 007 of the missionary world. That is not what he's trying to get at here. He's saying this. He's saying, you guys have been hearing all these stories from these false teachers of, of triumphant ministry. One story of success after another story of success. And let me tell you about my ministry. Let me tell you what my ministry has looked like. I had to escape from a city in a basket. That's how badly things have gone for me. That's how tough it's been. That's how unsuccessful my ministry has been at times. You see, one of the things that Paul is doing throughout both of his letters to this church is that he's helping them rethink what spiritual maturity looks like. And he's saying to them, Corinthians, you have bought into this strength and success and performance way of thinking about spiritual maturity and it's corrupting you. It's destroying you. It's completely imploding your entire church community. You've adopted a culture where presenting yourself as strong and capable and all bright and shiny in God is actually the thing that's ruining your church. And what we have here is Paul showing them another way. What we have here in this letter is Paul presenting them the Jesus way of being the community, the, the community of Christ, the church, the Jesus way of being strong. And he says, weakness, not strength, is your friend. Failure, not success, is what you should boast in. Vulnerability is where you should reach for, not power, these are actually the true signs of spiritual strength and maturity and transformation. In spite of what you've been taught, in spite of what your instincts and the culture around you might say, weakness is your strength. Now go back with me real quick to verse, verses 28 and 29. We skipped over those two. Paul makes an important, important point here. He says this. He's something real key about weakness. This is why weakness is so central to uh, the church of Jesus Christ. He says, besides everything else, besides all the failures I've listed, besides all the heartache and suffering and torment, he says, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Like anytime someone else is weak, I feel their pain. Anyone in, in, in all the churches, all the churches that I planted, anytime someone in one of those churches feels weak, I feel the impact of that. I feel their pain. He says, Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? He says, When someone who was a follower of Christ, who was a part of one of the churches that I've planted, veers from that, veers from that path and gets tempted into sin, it's like my heart is on fire. 
It hurts so bad. And do you want to know why Paul feels the way he does? You know why he's weak and broken and vulnerable because he cares for the church? It's because of this. It's because of love. Love is always attached to vulnerability. Love will always make you weaker and more powerless than you were before you loved. Some of you understand this. Some of you know this to be true because this is your story. You have a child who went off the rails or a spouse who one day decided they were tired of being married or a mom or a dad who treated you badly and the pain you feel from those moments, the brokenness in your heart is the direct result of the love you have for those people. You see, if you didn't love them, it wouldn't hurt. If you didn't love them, you could just say, well, enough with you. I'm done with this. I wash my hands of you, kid. But you can't do it because you love them. It's your love for them that causes you to suffer. It's your love for them that makes you weak. It's your love for them that causes you pain and torment and agony. Friends, Paul says, who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? I love these people so much that when they hurt, I hurt. When they blow it, it causes me pain. You see, my love will not just let me disconnect. And love, friends, is the crowning characteristic of the Christian. Someone who loves. Someone who chooses to enter into weakness and vulnerability because they love someone else so much. Paul is saying this. You want to know what it means to be a mature follower of Jesus? It means to love people so much that they can hurt you. It means making yourself vulnerable to pain and suffering because of your love for them. And friends, this this shouldn't surprise us at all because that's actually the message of the gospel. You ever think about who has the power in our relationship with God? Who has the power between us and God? Well, right, of course God does, right? He's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, he's omnipotent. And yet, in a sense, because God's love for us is so great, he becomes vulnerable, doesn't he? For God so... Loved the world. He so loved you and me. He so loved fallen, broken, sinful humanity that what? That he washed his hands from us and walked away and avoided all pain and suffering and torment for, till the end of time. No. That's not how the story goes. God loved us so much that he was vulnerable, that he became weak, and that he suffered. That's what love does. Love calls us to enter in. When you decide to love, you give up power for vulnerability and security for uncertainty and strength for weakness. That's what Paul says. He says, it's part of the reason why I'm so weak, because I love so much. Now we jump to the beginning of chapter 12. I know we're jumping around here a little bit, but follow with me. Um, Paul starts this chapter, and he's talking again about the power of weakness and where do we actually find growth and transformation and spiritual maturity for our souls. And his argument's going to be it's not in our strength, it's not in our success that we grow and mature, it's in our weakness. And so he tells two sort of conflicting stories, two stories that juxtapose this idea. And the first one, um, right at the beginning of chapter 12, is a story about a guy, Paul tells the story about a guy who was caught up to the third heaven. And he's, of course, talking about himself. 
He's talking about this phenomenal, wonderful, amazing spiritual experience that he's had, but because he doesn't want to boast, but because he doesn't want to brag on himself, because he's not trying to lift himself up, he's, he talks about himself in the third person. He says, I was caught up to the third heaven. And some of you are thinking like, there's layers to heaven? Which layer am I going to be in? Well, pastors are at the top. <laughs> Probably not, actually. Um, No, there's no layers to heaven. Actually, this is just a Jewish way uh, of saying this. In the Jews' minds, uh, level one of heaven was the clouds, the atmosphere. The second layer to heaven was the celestial bodies, space, the final frontier. And then the um, the third level of heaven was the place where God um, resided. It's where God was. That's like actual heaven, the way we think of heaven. And what Paul is saying here is he's, hey, I had this experience where I was actually transported into the very presence of God. You want to talk about something to put on your spiritual resume? You want to talk about something to brag about? You want to talk about something to boast in? I, a mere man, was in the very presence of God himself. And he goes on to say, like, I don't even really know how it happened. I can't even explain it to you. There were, like unspeakable words being spoken, which I don't understand because words are generally spoken, so how are they not speakable? But anyway, it's an amazing experience, Paul says. So he outlines this phenomenal experience that he had in the very presence of God, and his point is this, that is not what makes me great spiritually. That experience is not the foundation of my maturity and transformation in Jesus. He says, some of you might think that I would boast about this, that I would brag about this, that I would lift this up as one of my primary credentials. I don't. In fact, this this story, this experience is actually quite dangerous. It's actually... um, tempts me into becoming conceited and egotistical. You ever have this happen? You have an experience with God, or God does something for you, or He uses you, He does something in you or through you, and you start to think, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good for God, aren't I? He must be happy to have me. Paul says, yeah, that's the danger of these spiritual experiences. This experience, this amazing spiritual experience, is not the foundation of my transformation and growth and inward journey towards maturity in Jesus. He says, let me tell you what is. And he tells the second story. He says, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He says, you want to know how to grow in Christ? You want to know how to be a a true spiritual giant and be transformed internally and be mature and a leader? He says, you don't point towards the mountaintop experiences. You point towards the experiences in the valley. So why, here's the question today, why, what is so powerful about Paul sharing his weaknesses? I mean, how does Paul go about sharing these weaknesses that make them so significant and so powerful for us today? What can we learn from Paul as he talks about not his grandiose spiritual experiences with God, but his deepest, darkest moments? 
The first thing is I would say this. When Paul talks about his weaknesses, he does not water them down. You know, the, the opponents of Paul, they would spend a lot of time sort of building themselves up, saying, here, look at my gifts, look at my accomplishments, sort of like lifting up all the things that they'd experienced and done for God. And they'd sort of like poo-poo the, the things in their life that were, that were not going so hot. Paul does the opposite. He says, let me tell you in, in full living color about the difficulties and struggles that I'm facing. Paul uses uh, the word thorn here. He says there's a thorn in my flesh. And sometimes we think about that. And the image I always have of that thorn is, is, is what? What do you think of? I think of like a rose bush. Do you think of that? Like a little thorn? Like, prick, ooh, ouch, that hurt. It was bad and not a good thing. Suffering for Paul. Not the image, not the word. The word for thorn that Paul uses here is like a giant tent stake. But Paul is saying, is he's saying this is something that is so big and painful that it deeply and significantly causes pain and anguish and torture in my life. This is not something small. This is something huge. This is not something to downplay. This is something that's a major issue in my life. Not a small little irritant. Paul also adds that it's a thorn in the flesh. And Paul uses the word flesh to refer to his physical body a lot. And so, for this reason, some people have assumed that maybe Paul has some sort of a physical infirmity. Maybe Paul's referring to his eye problem. We know that Paul had some trouble with his eyes. Some people feel like Paul may have had a struggle with epilepsy. And there are a lot of different theories about the different physical ailments Paul could have been facing that he's referring to here as the thorn in, in his flesh, this deep, dark, difficult, physical wound that he had to just live with and endure. But Paul also uses the word flesh throughout the New Testament, to refer to spiritual flesh. And so, if that's what Paul's talking about here, he would, as he talks about the thorn in his flesh, be referring to sin. You ever think about that? You ever think about the fact that maybe what Paul is saying here is that I have been given this thorn in my flesh that I can't shake, there's the sin in my life. Maybe Paul's being tempted. Maybe Paul's struggling with bitterness or anger or lust or greed and he's trying to shake these temptations. He's trying to, to shake maybe this habitual sin that continues to plague him. He's saying, God, take it away, take it away, take it away. And God's just not taking it away. Not a little sin, not a teeny little thorn, but a giant tent stake of a sin right smack dab in the middle of Paul's life. The reality is this, friends. We don't know what this thorn is, do we? Paul never tells us exactly what the thorn is. He just tells us that it's a big deal. And that's a gift. Because if Paul told us exactly what his struggle was, you know what we'd do? You know what you'd do? You'd do the same thing as me. You'd go, oh, that's not my struggle. Well, you know, I can kind of dismiss the rest of what Paul's saying here. Paul leaves it open-ended. Why? He wants you to read yourself into this story. He wants you to read your struggle, your difficulty, your weakness, your area of brokenness right into what he's saying here. The second thing that's so powerful about how Paul shares his weakness and his weaknesses is that he tends to, to share them in real time. Have you ever noticed how most... Christians in the church don't do this. Most of us, and some of you are an exception to this, but most of us, uh, when we talk about our struggles, our weaknesses, our brokenness, the places of, of deep, intense 
difficulty for us, we talk about them in past tense. We say stuff like, back a few years ago, or when I was first married, or when I was in college, or when I was in middle school, or, you know, we talk about our sins and our struggles in past tense. Why? It's easier. It doesn't impugn our reputation quite as badly, does it? We're able to kind of maintain a, a, a level of, of spiritual pureness and holiness when we talk only about our struggles from the past but never about the present. Paul never does this. He doesn't talk about a thorn that he had a while back that God's now cleaned up and made all tidy and neat. He says, no, this is something that continues to plague me to this day. You see, we love to do exactly what the Corinthians were doing. We love to, to, to do sin image management. We love for people to think that we're just a little bit more holy, a little bit more righteous, a little bit more godly than we actually are. And so we talk about the sins from the past that God's been able to take care of in me. You know, you know sometimes, I'll just be real honest, sometimes what I do, this is how broken I am. Pastor Matt, you were right. Um, I'll sometimes talk real vulnerably or transparently about little sins or sins from the past just so that I look more spiritual. You ever do this? Wow, that Pastor Dave, he's so vulnerable up there in the pulpit. Yeah, I am, actually. <laughs> just up here, bearing my heart for all of you, you know, because I love God so much, and I want you to know it. I do that kind of stuff sometimes. I'm just that messed up. I care just that much about what you think of my spirituality when I really shouldn't. Um, I was going to do that today. I was, I was planning on it, to be honest. I, this is probably a number of weeks ago. I was out and I was preparing a bit for this series, looking ahead. And I had been doing some work earlier that day. And in the afternoon, I had jumped on my bike and I was going for a ride. And I was riding up on Skyline. Um, and I was thinking about this series. And I was thinking about this sermon on weakness and vulnerability. And I thought, you know what would be really good in that weakness and vulnerability sermon? If I shared some areas of weakness and vulnerability for me, just so that... I look really weak and vulnerable and biblical. Like, I'm like Paul. I'm weak and vulnerable. And everyone will think, man, Pastor Dave, so weak and vulnerable. And I had a few things picked out, a few little things, some things from my past. And I was all set. And I was just cranking up the hill in my little tight spandex shorts, feeling super good about myself. It's <laughs> an awkward image for y'all. Um, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit did this. I don't know if the Holy Spirit ever does this to you. Every now and then, and, 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 and it sounds like a really good thing when he would do this, but most of the time he does this to completely rebuke me and throw me off. He just said, that's not vulnerability, Dave. That's not weakness. That's not what Paul does here at all. That's image management. You see, if you really wanted to be vulnerable, this is the Holy Spirit talking to me, if you really wanted to be vulnerable, you know what story you'd share. I don't, I don't want to share that story. That's not the one I want to share. No, that's the one you should share. If you want to be vulnerable, it's up to you, Dave. I'm going to leave it up to you because that's the kind of Holy Spirit I am. But it's up to you if you want to share the story. And I'm going to share it. And some of you aren't going to like it because it takes the pastor right off the pedestal. It was probably a month and a half, two months ago. Is that right, hon? Maybe? Somewhere in there? Um, Amy and I went on a date. We went on a date. Um, we don't get off on too many dates, but on this particular day, the kids were gone somewhere, and we were, went hiking. We hiked down into the city and then over to 23rd Street, and we're going to get some lunch together and then hike back. It's the, great, it's the best date ever because you walk and then eat, and then you walk again, which means you can eat as much as you want. 
the best. And we were just having a great time, and we visited on the way down and joined one another, and we get to this little sandwich shop, this little uh, cheese steak sandwich shop down on 23rd. We'd never eaten there before, but it was really good. And we got our cheese steak sandwiches, guilt-free cheese steaks because of the hike. We're sitting there, and we're at the table, and we're just starting into our lunch, and Amy says, Honey, I need to talk to you about something. I said, Oh, okay. What? It's your temper. You've been a little too short with the children lately, and I just feel like I need to let you know about that. What? No, I, you know, you're a really good dad, and you've always been a great dad, but I just feel like I don't know what's going on with you lately. You just seem stressed and uptight, and it's like you're flying off the handle at just the littlest things with the kids. And, and they're starting to be like a little bit freaked out by you, and I think you just need to check it and dial yourself back a little bit. I love you, and you're a great dad. It's just so gracious. You just offered it so graciously. It was like all the air in my balloon from this wonderful date. Dead. Really? Is that who I am? Is that what? And there's this part of me that just wanted to fight it. That can't be true. That's just your perception. It's, no, it's the kid's fault. No, it's this. No, and it's like, but my wife was so stinking kind about it. It was just like I had nowhere to run. I had nowhere to hide. I just had to just receive it. Man. This is one of those moments where I, I literally walked back the entire hike back with just a knot in my stomach with the Holy Spirit saying, you still got a lot of work to do, Dave. Still got a lot of work to do because, you know, and this is what Paul says, anyone can you know, preach to people and talk about Jesus and lead people to Christ and plant churches and do all this stuff. But what's really going on inside is there's still some stuff to deal with. And for me, there is. For me... There is. But that's a real-time story. It's a story that I'm working on right now. That's a month and a half in, and I think I'm doing a little better, hopefully, with that. Um, no, don't applaud that. That's not really applaud-worthy, I don't think. Um, it's actually pretty humiliating. <sighs> Next thing I think is powerful about Paul sharing his weaknesses is that they promote a culture of unity. You ever notice that in this church, the most pompous, arrogant, boastful church of all, the Corinthian church, the gifts are flying, you know, the tongues are roaring, the prophecies raging, people are getting healed and helped and saved and all the stuff is happening and the spiritual giants are emerging out of the woodwork. There's more disunity in this church than any other church in the entire New Testament and Paul hits it time and time and time again. You know what weakness and vulnerability bring? Unity. You see, there's something so powerful about these words. I need help. I don't know. I think I was wrong. You see, that's, what, that's a culture of weakness. And when there is a culture and a posture of weaken, weakness and brokenness in a church, there's a chance for there to be unity. But when there's not... Disunity and division and dissension will reign. Next thing that's powerful about Paul sharing his weaknesses is that they reveal a true understanding of God's safe love found in the gospel. It's the last point today. You ever notice that he says, uh, it says in the text, Paul says, that there's this thorn in my flesh and it was brought to me by a messenger of Satan. It's pretty intense. Can you imagine getting a message from Satan? Here's your telegram, Carl. Like, I don't want it, you know. Um, 
This is what Paul's saying here. He's saying there's this weakness, there's this difficulty, there's this struggle, there's this brokenness, and every single time one of those things pops up in your life, and we've all got them, this, Satan will attach a message to it. Satan will come in right in those places and right in those moments and try to tell you things that are true about yourself and about God and about the world because Satan loves to talk to us in the midst of our weakness. And I can only imagine the messages that Satan was attaching to this thorn in the middle of Paul's flesh. You call yourself an apostle. You say you're a spiritual leader. You say God loves you. And he can't even, he won't even take this thing away from you. You're still struggling with that? And you call yourself a Christian leader? How many messages had, had Paul just taken on the chin from Satan over this one thorn? And yet, you know what Paul does? He just keeps going to God. He just keeps going to God. God, not Satan's message. What's your message for me in the midst of this weakness? What is it that you want to teach me? Three times he prayed to the Lord, take it away. Three times, Lord, help me, meet me, deliver me, do whatever you need to do with me, but do something with this thorn in my flesh. And what's, what's God's message? My grace is sufficient for you. See, Paul, you can live with this thorn. You can live with this brokenness. You can live with this weakness. Because guess what? You're already loved. You're already accepted. I love you with or without the thorn. Get rid of the thorn. Keep the thorn. My love for you doesn't change one bit. Do you know how empowering that must have been for Paul? You see, the reason I think Paul is able to be so vulnerable... It's because he feels safe. I've been saying this a lot lately. It's, it's like one of my new things. Um, what people really need to be who God has called them to be in this world are three things. Safety, love, and clear boundaries and expectations. It's like, what do you want to give to your staff at church? Safety, love, and clear boundaries and expectations. What do you need from the elders, Pastor Dave? Safety, love, clear boundaries and expectations. What do your children need in your home? That's why that message from Amy was a little bit jarring to me. They need safety, they need love, they need clear boundaries and expectations. You see, friends, when you have safety and you have love, then you can live in brokenness and vulnerability. And that's what Paul has. He fully understands and has received the love, the unconditional love, and the safety and the clear boundaries and expectations of God in his life. And in that place, being anchored and rooted in a God who loves him no matter what, he can say, I'm a broken person. I don't have to convince you that I'm more spiritual than I am, that I'm better than I am, that I'm more holy or righteous than I am, because guess what? God loves me the same. I am stable, I am secure, I am safe, I am loved in Him. His grace is sufficient for me. It's all I need. And now, I can live an authentic life. Tim Keller says this, Everybody who goes through a period of weakness at some point will say, Oh my gosh, He must love me, not because I'm perfect, but because He's perfect. Not because I'm good, but because He's good. It just frees you. Experiences of weakness lead to power. In fact, Paul says, God will never let you go. That's why in your weakness you're strong. Because in your weakness, that's when you discover just how much God loves you. And when you know that, then you can really start living. Friends, the question for you this morning is this. Are you living like the Corinthians? Do you live with a posture of pride and defensiveness? 
A posture that says, I have to achieve, I have to prove, I have to succeed. Or do you live with a posture of vulnerability and weakness? You see, a lot of Christians will say, yeah, I'm weak, yeah, I'm a sinner. And they go out and they live with pride and defensiveness over every little thing. Do you see that in yourself? Do you understand how you're living? Do you understand what's happening inside of you? Is what's happening inside of you, in spite of what you know to be true, pride and defensiveness or weakness and vulnerability? Peter Scazzaro, the author of the Emotionally Healthy Church, the book we're kind of using to kind of launch into this series with, he has a couple of, he has this chart. And in this chart there are two columns. And he says, read these, read these columns and decide which column best describes you. Just get real honest about it. Brokenness and vulnerability, pride and defensiveness. And I'm going to, here's what we're going to do. We're going to close this morning this way. I'm going to put those, th- that list on the screen. I just want you to take a few minutes, read through it. Get honest with yourself. Am I, am I hiding from my brokenness and vulnerability? Am I living in pride? Am I living with defensiveness? Or am I, like Paul, able to embrace and receive the brokenness and vulnerability in my life, let God touch it, and then live from that place in power and strength because of Him? Friends, take a few minutes. Read through the list. Ask God just to talk to you. Who am I? Is there pride? Or is there vulnerability? And then, when you're ready, after you've done that for a little bit, Come to the table, take the bread, take the cup, and remember through this meal, declare again to your soul, your safe soul, your loved soul, there's nothing to be afraid of. This is the safest place, the safest community you'll ever be in because we serve the safest God. Take a few minutes. When you're ready, come to the table, and then shortly after we'll close with some worship songs.